Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Judgment Call, a podcast where I talk to risk takers, adventurers, travelers, entrepreneurs, and simply mind bogglers. My name is Torsten Jacoby, and I'm your host. This episode of Judgment Call is sponsored by Mighty Travels Premium. Full disclosure, this is my business. Mighty Travels Premium finds the travel deals that you really want, and it finds them as they happen. Between 450,000 airfares every day, they give you the best deals in economy, premium economy, business, and first class. We also make recommendations for four and five star hotels all over the planet when they are much cheaper than they usually are. The thousands of subscribers have saved more than 95% on their airfare tickets and have flown the business class, life-led, transcontinental using our deals. In case you didn't know, Americans, Europeans, and many other nationalities can now travel to more than 80 destinations again. Give it a shot and try a Mighty Travels Premium for free for 30 days today. You can sign up at mightytravels.com slash MTP. For everyone who's troubled with all these characters, go to MTP for you. That's just five characters, mtp for youcom and sign up for your 30-day free trial. Excited today. I have Pablo Feller here on the Judgment Call podcast. Pablo has been helping to build businesses and change lives on three continents, first as an engineer, then as an investor, now as an entrepreneur. Building private education businesses in the Middle East. Hey, Pablo, how are you? Hey, Torsten, I'm doing great and very happy to be here. It's great to have you. My first question, the first time we met, um, you told me you grew up in Argentina, and uh, but we actually met in Germany, and now you you work in Bahrain and Dubai. So the obvious question for everyone is: So what are you running from? <laughs> is it the authorities, or is it is it a lifestyle? Because here's the thing: I always get that question when when I tell people where I come from, and especially when I go back to Germany, and everyone they're serious with that. So. It's, there's no, no joking in that question. So I want to hear your answer. How do you get around answering that question? Uh, I, 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 I think I have left, uh, you know, every country that I've left, I've left, I've, I've left a, you know, clean uh, track record. Uh, and uh, what's always motivated me to move from place to place was uh, kind of the mystery and the adventure of of uh, going to you know living in a new country, um, and as you said, you know I was born in Argentina, um, grew up in Argentina, uh, went to Germany for my education, uh, studied there, uh, worked in Germany for actually I, I I lived in Germany for a longer period of time than in Argentina, as it turns. Oh wow! And um, and then, you know, I, uh, I, I was always fascinated by travel um, and I got lucky to actually find suckers that <laughs> paid for my travel, basically. Okay. Uh, and yeah. um, so I moved around, uh, you know, for work, uh, lived in India, lived in Brazil, uh, came to the Middle East uh, first in Dubai and then went to Bahrain for a couple of years and now I'm, I'm back in Dubai. Uh, so um, it's, it's been rather the, you know, the adventure and the, the mystery of living in, in, a, in a different culture and to, in a way, 
um, f- find yourself in uh, because you know th- there there is this. Um, I I read a book by uh, Alain de Botton uh, called uh, On Love, uh, and I, there, there was one thing that I, that stuck. That sounds very me. French already. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, he, I, I think I think he's he's uh, British and Swiss or something. Uh, oh, okay. But uh, it, it's it's a it's a kind of a modern philosopher, and uh, he's he's got plenty of books. Uh, I read a couple. Uh, you know, great great writer. And there is this image of uh, that that he wrote about that stuck with me over the years, which is that we human beings are like. Uh, like um, jellyfish, or I think he says like amoebas. Um, and we, we kind of, we don't have a shape of our own, uh, but we are shaped by our environment. And I, I was always fascinated by that concept of, you know, when you move to another place and live in a different culture, you end up changing yourself uh, because the environment shapes you as well. Um, and Absolutely. so, so that that that, that 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 is something that I'm sure you can relate to as well. You know, having been being, being you know born in Germany and now living in the U.S. and being a, a basically a a, a, a you know a, a globetrotter, a homeless and, person. Uh, you could say that. That's okay. Uh, we can be honest here. <laughs> no. I, I I totally understand that concept, and it's that's that's absolutely true. We we are, and that's hard to define where we get these intrinsic notions of ourselves from. You know, um, I see this with my children. They're definitely born with a personality that they didn't have a say over. I didn't have a say over. So there's there's a lot of personality that's that's burned into our genetics. And that expresses itself over time that we can't control. We feel it's us, but there's a lot of biology underneath our neocortex that defines us. We just take it as a given. We never really think about it until we're like 40. And then, you know, in the old days, there weren't a lot of years left before we die. That, that, that is such a great point, Orson, because I, you know, when growing up in Argentina, I thought that I was, you know, an individual person that I was, so to say, my my own creation and my own choice, uh, and I was, in a way, hundred percent Pablo. And when I moved to Germany, I discovered that that is not the case. That the, you know, that the, the the cultural influences that I carried with me were so large. Um, so that actually it was perhaps only 10% Pablo and, uh, and the rest were things that I didn't choose for myself, but were given to me by my genetics, by my, uh, by my culture, the culture where I grew up. Right. And, and, and that is, that is one great thing about living in different places that you can, you know, you, it becomes, uh, conscious to you, right? It goes from from being a habit, from being something that is in, I don't know, uh, deep in in our lizard brains, uh, to becoming something conscious on in the neocortex, where you you say, you know, is this something that I actually want? Uh, you know, let's say a, a behavioral pattern or something like that. I, I, am I doing this because I want to do it, or am I doing this 
because I am just uh, you know a product of my culture, a product of my genes, and um, you know I'm I'm just reacting in a way that um, I've, I've never thought that I could actually react in a different way. And when you go to a culture and see people behaving in different ways, you say, well, actually, there's a different response to this stimulus, right? Absolutely, and it's 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 maybe flattering for some in some moments, but it's very unsettling. Um, you kind of spend a lot of time thinking, oh, what what could have been if I would have had this insight when I was 20 or when I was 12 or six years old. And somehow mm. we absorb all these things around us and kind of we unconsciously define ourselves like this. So it, it gets really tricky um, in terms of what, where is this free will, where is this whole consciousness? Because we absorb so many things around us, as you say. Um, and then we, we have a hard time deciphering what is actually things that we influence with some kinds of consciousness or things that we just absorbed into that. But one thing that really, really inspired me being in different places and, and living somewhere else, I always felt the the lifestyle that I had, I'm not losing it, which might be a little bit of a deception, but I, wherever you, you show up, and I think you, you can relate to that, is you, you keep kind of the lifestyle and you can always go back and you kind of feel like you belong to it in a certain sense, not fully. You're never really the same insider anymore. You're always being treated as an outsider, but you, you always gain a new experience and that old experience is still there. And you can, you can be like, I can go back to Germany and be German. I, I would be, I would literally change my behavior. I would change my everyday habits. I would change my, not just the, the language itself, but also the tonage and the, you kind of become a different person once you mm. go back to a different language. I can do the same thing with Russian to have never really lived longer than six months there. And I could feel home there. And I would, I would think like, like, the average Russian a little more than I do now. And, but it doesn't go away. I can always go back to this personality and can kind of transport myself into that and say, oh, what would someone with that mindset, like myself in that time frame, would have thought about that? And that is something that people, I think, are worried about if they go somewhere else. The idea is that they lose something forever and they can never go back. Like there's literally no ship back and you're going to be lost on a different continent. I never had that. So I think that's a personality trait um, that, that enables us to do that. Yeah, I, I think, I think uh, you know, it's, I fully agree with you. And it's like uh, one set of experiences comes on top of the other, right? And, and it's very, very connected. You mentioned language, right? You, you go back to Germany, you speak German. Uh, I, you know, when I moved to Germany and I had to learn German, uh, I had learned a little bit of German before in the Goethe Institute in Cordoba, where, where I was living back then, um, Argentina, Cordoba, Argentina, not Cordoba, Spain. And um, but when I moved to Germany, I basically had to learn German from scratch, and and that was, a, you know, a, a great experience for me to, uh, first of all, obviously learning German. Uh, is very difficult for uh, you know. It must be I was, terrifying, uh, isn't it? Germans yeah. are not not very accepting of little issues in their language. They think it's terrible. I mean, they, they yeah, I think yeah. it's they're, they're emotionally. It's not that they want to be mean to other people. They just they feel if they hear improper German, they they feel bad, and it, it's it, yeah. <laughs> it's not. It's like a like an immediate a pain that they have. It's like an emotional pain that they can't shake. Right. 
so um, I, you know, I, I, I put a lot of effort in learning German and, I, you know, I, I became very good at it. And by doing it, basically you learned a different way of thinking, right? And, and there is all this, this uh, uh, you know, research about the relationship between language and cognition, right? And, 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 and which one is the chicken and which one is the egg? Yeah. Uh, and I, I'm not ex- an expert on that, but uh, there, there, there is, there is. I mean, in my experience, certainly that is something that you learn to think in a different way, right? Uh, and there is this. Uh, I don't know if you watch this fantastic movie called uh, Arrival um, about yeah. you know aliens coming to to, yeah. to Earth, and and uh, basically this scientist, the main character in the movie, uh, learns the language of the aliens. And by, uh, by learning that language, she basically starts to see the future because of some characteristics of that language that made her, uh, you know, gave her that, that ability, right? And, 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 that, and that, is, that is so, I, I found that so fascinating because that indeed is the way. So if you start thinking in a different way because you're using a different language, uh, that completely changes your, your abilities in a way, right? And, and, and G- German, as you, uh, Perhaps that's something that you don't even know because that's your mother tongue, right? But uh, you, you, because you, oftentimes in, in the secondary sentences you put the, the verb at the end, right? So you basically you have to plan the entire sentence in your head before you start talking about it because you, you know, it's not like you start with a verb and then you. Uh, so it 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 actually changes the way you think, and um, and it, for me that was that was you know, uh, fascinating. Uh, so. Yeah, it's very similar, similar in Russian. So if you speak proper Russian, it's like playing chess. You like it, you're not just planning out the sentence; you're planning out the whole paragraph before you even start with the first word. And right. they all have to be in perfect sync. Um, and uh, six tenses, and uh, it's it's I don't know how many conjugations, like eleven or twelve. It's a nightmare in terms of grammar. But if you if you know how to do it properly. You, it's like math. Like there's a lot of it's like almost like AI. You predict where something is going to be in the right. next paragraph, and then you change your language. So it's right, not right, a, right. a and uh, and that's I think German is somewhere along those lines. Um, it's often more more specific. In I think it's a very spe- great specific language. It's a great engineering language. So if you're an engineer, yes. uh, <laughs> then German is awesome because you can just combine these words and it works perfectly. But if you want to think about the big picture. It's not that great because you're losing that that amount of specificity when you think about the future, which often doesn't have words yet. So it's not right. great for that. I always felt. Yeah, maybe and, the alien and, language uh, would be better. <laughs> yeah, we, we have to decipher uh, this. Maybe some Klingon. So, um, if if you compare for if you, if you take uh, two magazines, uh, say I don't know uh, Der Spiegel. Uh, in Germany and uh, The Economist in, 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 in the UK. And, and you take basically a, the, the same article. They would, you know, they, they would both address the same issue uh, about politics or economy or whatever, right? And typically, uh, that I've observed over and over and over again, right? Uh, the Economist would be one page and The Spiegel would be two pages, right? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's kind of... Both. Yeah, yeah, it, very it is more robust. Very like robust. the same as French, right? But it, it, yeah. it. I think the most of the English languages are terms. <clears throat> excuse me, are really geared towards a certain purpose. 
So they give you they give you an idea of what do you use this for in order to to change the future, so to speak. Right? Mm. A German doesn't have that. It's more like where does it come from and how? What, what is this, the most specific word we can come up with? Like combine like six nouns into one. You know the Landschaftsschutzgesetz. Um, it goes further. It goes further. I'm bad at this. I've lost most of it. Uh, anyway, but um, you have one thing that I noticed: the typical entrepreneurship career is you come out of a big company, then you start your own business, um, then this business eventually becomes big if you're lucky enough, or if you're good enough, and then you become a VC entrepreneur in residence, become a VC, you eventually retire, and then you can maybe start a podcast or write a book. <laughs> You did it in a slightly different way, right? You started with Daimler, then you went to become a VC, then you became a private equity um, investor, and now you're an entrepreneur managing a company you own a good amount of shares in, right? Uh, yeah. So, uh, so I, I I had the fortune uh, of having kind of different careers in, in the course of my life. And I, I think for... Our generation, my generation, our generation, that is rather the exception uh, than the rule. But I think that that is something that, you know, my son's generation, that will become, uh, you know, the rule. And, you know, for, for me, it was, I started as an, as an engineer. I have a PhD in uh, engineering and computer science, and uh, I work for technology, uh, developing technology. Uh, with Mercedes-Benz and Airbus. And, and then during the, the, the boom, the tech boom in the late 90s, uh, more by accident than design, I started to get uh, you know, interested in, 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 in the venture capital uh, world. And I, I found it so fascinating. And I understood, I, I, I thought that the, Coming from the technology uh, world, I realized how much finance plays a role in uh, influencing the direction which technology uh, evolves, right, and moves. Because you know, you had uh, at the end of the '90s all these uh, venture capital funds investing in, in new technologies, mobile technologies, internet, and so on and so forth. Uh, and 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 in that way, giving them, giving young companies, the financial means to basically uh, become, uh, you know, uh, uh, unfold their business plans, and ultimately some of them ended up changing the world, right? Uh, so I found that very fascinating, and uh, you know, started reading about venture capital. I, I, to be honest, I had no clue about finance. I was a typical engineer. Uh, you know, I, I knew how to program. I knew I knew technologies, but I didn't really understand finance. So I started reading and you know buying books about venture capital, private equity, finance, how to read a balance sheet and stuff like that. Uh, and I did that as a hobby, basically, um, because I, I, I was so fascinated by it. And at some point, I started thinking, well, actually, if, if I like this so much uh, and I'm, you know, in my spare time, I read about, uh, you know, these new startups and so on, why not try to work for, for a venture capital firm? And uh, I got lucky with the timing because it was you know, 
1999, a, a lot of people were, a lot of funds were looking for candidates that had a technology background. And, uh, you know, I, ha- I had a strong technology background and I you know, just tried my luck. And I started sending CVs to different funds and ended up, to my surprise, getting, you know, multiple offers. Um, and, uh, you know, joined a, a VC uh, fund in Hamburg, Germany. And that's how we got to know each other, right? Because you you, you right. were looking for uh, for funds for one of your uh, startups. And, uh, you know, I pitched that, you that, that, that somewhat unsuccessfully. I think you were, you, <laughs> you, were, you were happy with it, but the rest of the firm didn't like it as much, right? If I remember it correctly. That, 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 that was the case. I, I was... Um, I was fascinated because of my, uh, you know, uh, traveling has always been my one of my passions. So, uh, and, and obviously, your business idea was uh, related to to travel, and uh, so I, I, I found that fascinating. But I could not convince uh, my partners to, uh, to 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 invest in your in your startup. They were tough. They were tough. I remember those meetings. They were fun. They were like very skeptical. It's. Um, um, what's a good, good comparison. Um, it's just a tough audience, um, kind of like a YouTube audience where, um, you get like a ton of dislikes and a ton of comments that where you're like, Phil, whoa. Um, but I think they, they're very smart. Um, they, they had the right questions. They just, they came from a very different point of view. The, the VC industry itself in Germany hasn't, I think it disappeared, right? Kind of the, when you left um, in 2010, most of the VC funds in Germany closed up shop. And um, maybe maybe that's because of you. you, you. <laughs> and they, they were sad you left. But I, I felt like the, the, the biggest problem, and we see this in the US now, so maybe Germany was just ahead. We, we saw this in fundraising for most VC funds, which was, from, from what I've seen, you know, better, was very sluggish. And... It's just the general expectation of what do you do with these startups? Um, where will they go? There wasn't any public market anymore because that kind of faltered in the early 2000s or the mid 2000s. And uh, there wasn't like a blueprint that we had here in the US for quite some time that there was a 10 year fund that had a certain RI and that worked with a bunch of venture firms, not just a few. And yeah, I'm not sure this model. I kind of feel like the VC model itself is broken in the U.S. because what happened is we have these unicorn exits that I always feel is kind of an insider deal between a couple of VCs here, SoftBank, who which uses money from the Japanese post system that has been printed by the central bank, props those up kind of as a pipeline deal, and then they go IPO, they rip off the shareholders, and then they kind of disappear, these companies. I always feel that's a little... Well, it's maybe it sounds a little cynical, but what I I felt is missing, and the question you could ask the question is it ever sustainable? But I think what's happening with Nassim Taleb is describing as entrepreneurship. So literally, the individual entrepreneur who puts up his own money, who puts up his own knowledge and his own reputation, puts that against the business plan because for some reason that person wants to believe in this or does believe in it and um, executes for a couple of years and then these things take off. Some of them go IPO, some of them you know, go nowhere, probably most of them go nowhere, but it's very different 
risk profile and way to handle a business, like a family business, you can say the Chinese style family business that eventually moves into an IPO one day. Um, not the, the state-controlled um, Chinese enterprises, but the, the traditional Chinese way of investing. I think there's a lot to it. it. It grounds people into a reality. It has a lot of societal impact. So I think it's really positive. And I think we've lost this. And we've lost this, especially in the VC market that maybe never wanted this, but for a while, I think, was part of that market. Do you feel the same or do you think VC is still really going strong? I, I, you talk. You, t- you touch on many things there, and I think that uh, first and foremost, the 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 model of the entrepreneur building a company and uh, you know building new businesses, uh, disrupting the uh, the sector in which they work, creating new uh, opportunities and, and creating jobs uh, is is clearly the a success model. And the countries that, or the regions, the areas that have been good at creating uh, a good environment for entrepreneurs uh, have have become uh, successful. So that is, uh, I mean, I, I think I think that that is that is uh, that is very very clear. That's a forgotten um, lesson, though. That doesn't show up in any mainstream discussion for the last ten years anymore. Strangely enough, that seems obvious, right? But like, I feel it's behind closed doors. People still say that. But that's not happening, you know. I don't want to say the word mainstream media, but say a lot of media wouldn't touch that notion anymore. Yeah, um, I, I mean, it, it is, it is. Um, if you know, if if you, if you think of the great successes uh, of the the last decade or so, um, I mean, Facebook was, you know. I think that they started in 2006 or something like that. Uh, and, and 14 years hence is one of the largest companies in the world. Uh, whether it's, you know, they've done something good for humanity or not is is, is very debated at the moment. But, you know, yeah. uh, um, at, 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 least, at least at the beginning, you know, this thing of connecting people uh, was uh, clearly something very positive. Um, so, and, and then there's been, the developments of the, you know, that you mentioned, uh, the Vision Fund uh, by uh, by SoftBank, which have distorted valuations and created expectations where, um, you know, that alignment of interest uh, and that skin in the game that you referred to earlier, uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, from 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 startups, right, uh, has yeah. been uh, in a way distorted, it, it, and and the the fiasco of uh, WeWork, uh, this portfolio company from uh, SoftBank uh, or Vision Fund, uh, has basically made the point, right, that uh, they 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 have taken the whole thing too far, and uh, the 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 basic advantages of startups and uh, entrepreneur driven companies uh, has been lost along the way because of you know the the, the incentive schemes uh, moved away from uh, from the you know the way it should be so yeah the whole system so has become very fragile that's kind of his his latest notion kind of saying the same thing but um, 
the the monopolies that have started out, and I think you know Peter Thiel's thesis that you want to start a monopoly or you shouldn't start a business. I think it's it's it doesn't just sound cool. I think it makes a lot of sense from an entrepreneurial perspective. Um, but typically, these monopolies are on a timer, so they they go on. You build them initially. You don't have one, then you're going to create one, and then they go away. But some of these, the internet monopolies, they get bigger by the day. They don't go away. This seems to be the opposite happening. The same is true for Intel. Well, do they have a little more competition these days? But for 30, 40 years, there wasn't any. That's kind of a strange phenomenon. You would feel with the with the the amount of change that we see and the 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 time frame of progress that has sped up. You should see monopolies coming up. Yes, but they should also falter as quickly as they came around. But that doesn't seem to happen. And I think that really bothers people. Yes. And, 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 that, and that, is, that is a very uh, strong discussion we're having at the moment uh, in, in terms of whether the, those companies should be broken up, right? That have become de facto monopolies. Um, and, and whether antitrust should be uh, a force in a, in a more, you know, in, in, in a more, uh, uh, in a way that protects the the consumer uh, as they should. So, you know, it, it's. Um, I feel the market should take care of this. I mean, I'm antitrust might be a good idea, but it's it's going to be messy and very bureaucratic. And I'm not sure if people get it right the first time or the first couple of times they do it. But I'm surprised that. These market forces haven't taken care of this, um, and I'm I'm trying to find a way to see. And this is this is kind of where, where I'm at. Is that the 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 notion and the drive to create entrepreneurship that's kind of being eradicated or has has dropped so much. Obviously, there was a huge euphoria in the '90s, and that was not sustainable. But the the demand for entrepreneurs, I think, was is as low now as ever. In, in society as a whole, I put it this way. And that's kind of true globally. I mean, obviously, there's places in the world that are still very entrepreneurial. But, and I think I'm, I wouldn't blame this on COVID. COVID is just is more like a symptom of this whole thing than it is um, the cause. Um, I I mean, I, I think I think that you're, you're referring to the fact that uh, because of the market power of this big uh tech giants um, that that has created a, a disincentive for entrepreneurs is that what, what you're referring to because Correct. otherwise I think that, I, 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 I think that the innovation the, has slowed down because of the monopoly power so the the, the, the big um, argument is always well well you cannot be unhappy with Google because everything is free for pretty much everyone so they give us new new stuff and it's free and you cannot be unhappy about this because you can't make it any cheaper. But what people don't realize is that advertising is so expensive and unaffordable for most startups. So we've been seeing out a lot of stuff that should have come yes. out the last 20 years or last 10 years, especially that never made it to the user because nobody has the money Uber had access to where they could literally give everyone on the planet $100 in free rides. Mm -hmm. And then they still have $100 billion left or $50 billion left. And... Um, that's been a huge barrier of entry is primarily the way that you can reach for very low cost, obviously for a limited time, you can reach out to potential customers. And there was has always been a marketing innovation. I think in the in the 90s, it was just simply media, media hype. And then we got uh, cheap SEO and cheap SEM. And then 
That was followed by um, social media and Facebook, which actually helped get the word out because all these startups, as you said earlier, it's kind of useless to have good technology if you don't have the financial power. And I think even more importantly, the marketing power to, to get to your customers, they're completely useless. They will never know and they have no chance of knowing about you. And I feel this is where, in, from my perspective, the, the crux lies is that the marketing power is, is unaffordable to most entrepreneurial ventures. And, uh, but, but, but I mean, the, the, there are lots of niches which are uh, left, uh, left behind by, by, by the tech giants that can be uh, taken advantage by uh, entrepreneurs such as yourself, right? Take, take, a, oh, yes. take a look at your, your company, Mighty Travels. I'm a subscriber there. I think that you're, you know, you're doing a great job uh, addressing the niche of people that are looking to uh, travel in style uh, on a budget, right? And, 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 and you, <laughs> and you right. find fantastic, uh, fantastic, uh, you know, fantastic offers. Um, and, and that is something that obviously I can go and check uh, uh, Google Slides as well. Um, but, you know, the way, the way you, you pack it and the way you, you search for, for those great deals uh, is unique and you have you know, created a very nice niche for yourself, which is, uh, you know, I, th- I think I think sustainable. And Google is not going to come after you there, right? So, uh, so no, that, I don't think that, so. I don't think so. But the 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 question is, how do we how do we get to uh, say, say Netflix has two hundred million subscribers, um, or at least registered users? I don't know how many actually pay, and. Um, you know, you want to get to a few million relatively quickly. And this is like a societal rollout. It's like all these things we heard about in the 90s. Some of them we finally have now, like video conferencing and podcasts. But as a, as a technology, they've been around for 20 years. And we still work with the same terminals. It's very similar to the late 80s technology. But the rollout through society, I think, is lagging. And that could be societal adoption. People are just lazy. Or it could be that marketing has been harder than before. So I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just I just feel technology could make a much quicker rollout um, than what we see right now. And that's kind of the, this big stagnation um, that is, predates that. That's from the 70s, where we don't have the productivity growth we should see with this acceleration of technology that's clearly there. That is a, a piece of technology um, this doubling every 18 months of semiconductor power that drives so many, so many core innovations but societal impact has been relatively slow outside of the core semiconductor software and finance industry, which is odd. Um, and, and, you know, I'm still trying to find out why that is. I, I don't have an answer either. I think nobody has. But the, the lack of, of, you know, niche entrepreneurship of things that, that happen in your area of expertise and that you push forward is something that, that should be much bigger. And... Um, some countries do better. Some some countries have trouble with that. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. We we um, so do you feel venture capital will come back? We we talked about it a little bit, but do you think venture capital as a model of financing these ventures will make a comeback, or what will kind of I, the way? I, I I have the sense that uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, new hotspots which are coming up. In, in different parts of the world, whilst you know, ten years ago, fifteen years ago, venture capital was a thing of mostly the U.S. and uh, you know, to a lesser extent, to 
to a much lesser extent, uh, Europe. Uh, in the meantime, you have uh, a lot of venture capital funds which are focused on their, uh, you know, particular market. Uh, for instance, here in Dubai, where I'm based, uh, when I moved to Dubai 12 years ago or so, there was nothing that would resemble an ecosystem of uh, venture capital. There were no venture capital investors. Um, there were barely any, uh, you know, startups uh, that 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 you could consider startups in, you know, in, in the in the tech space. Or um, obviously, you had a lot of entrepreneurs here and a, a lot of trade taking place and so on. But but not not uh, you know the company the type of companies that uh, venture capital uh, funds would like to invest in. And and. And also there were no exits, right? So uh, no funds, no startups, no targets, uh, and no exits. Uh, this is 12 years ago. Meantime, we have a, I would say, a couple of handful uh, of, of funds, which are, you know, are, are small funds, but are quite active. Um, we have a very buzzing startup scene, uh, Dubai has become in the Middle East the place to be if you want to start a uh, you know a, a company kind of a techie type of company, uh, mobile internet um, you know services uh, products uh, this kind of things you 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 would typically come to Dubai to do it uh, and, and 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 we've had a couple of large exits right with for instance the local uh, Middle Eastern uh, Uber called Karim uh, was acquired by Uber uh, for a couple of billion dollars. Uh, the local um, Amazon, uh, so to say, called Souk.com also got bought by by Amazon. Um, and uh, you know there, there were a couple of very very high profile exits in in the region. So that that ecosystem that didn't exist 10 years ago, clearly exists today. And I hear that, you know, same thing at, at the much, much larger scale uh, is going on in, in India, is going on in China, uh, and it, at the smaller scale is also going on in, in smaller markets, uh, say, you know, uh, Bangladesh uh, or Sri Lanka or, um, you know, the, the stands. Uh, you know, you, 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 you have, you have a, a VC community which has come up uh, over the course of the last 10 years. So that is um, something that is actually very promising. Yeah, that sounds really exciting. That's um, that's, that's something you, you won't hear so much about. Um, I, I don't have any exposure to it personally, I have to say. Um, do, do you think, you know, Dubai as a, as a city development, but also as a societal development, as, or as an experiment, I, I would say we, we, we still don't know how it's going to play out. Do you feel we could use it as a blueprint somewhere else? You know, the the idea of creating a obviously well-funded, but there is an overhang of money in many countries, Japan, Germany, the US, China, lots of savings that are not, some are not being reinvested or are less reinvested than, let's put it this way, than maybe in, in the 70s. Isn't there a future model where we say, oh, we built this model of charter cities, we, we go into places where 
for whatever reason, maybe it's the uh, it's culture, it's jurisdiction, it's the laws, it's climate, whatever it was, development hasn't really taken hold. And we create a place like Dubai, um, kind of like, the, you could say it's a Singaporean model also. You create mm -hmm. something in the middle of nowhere and um, have a certain vision combined or set aside that, that comes along with it that obviously is different than the environment has been so far. You know, Dubai is very different than Saudi Arabia and it's 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 similar, mm -hmm. but it's very different in terms of what what how liberal it is and how it drives development on a, on a large scale and then reinvests in those. Do you think that's a model that can be taken, not just in venture capital, but just as a city development or as a development of a new jurisdiction and taken to different countries? Or it's, there can only be one Dubai in the Middle East and one Singapore in Asia? I think it's the latter, Thorsten, uh, because the basically the model is to be in a way, a safe haven. Yeah. Uh, is The model is to be what Switzerland is for Europe, uh, what uh, Panama has become for uh, Central America, what uh, Uruguay, to a less extent, uh, is for South America, um, what Hong Kong is for China, what Singapore is for uh, South Asia. Uh, so a, a place where ha that has a stable government, uh, respect for rule of law, uh, and a tradition to respect the rule of law, uh, a place that is business friendly. And in the case of Dubai, uh, that doesn't apply to, or, or to a less, apply differently in, in the other examples that I mentioned before, but in the case of Dubai is, you know, to a large extent tax-free, uh, at least when it comes to income taxes. Uh, we don't have income taxes here. We have other kind of uh, taxes, you know, corporate taxes and, and fees for, for, for a number of things, but otherwise no income taxes. Um, so that, that creates, that, that is a huge magnet for entrepreneurial spirit, right? If you can't come to a place that uh, where uh, you have a respect of the rule of law, is predictable, is uh, there is an ease of doing business and uh, the money that you make uh, ends up in your pocket uh, as opposed to, you know, in, in the government's pockets. That, 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 is, that is an extremely attractive proposition. Yeah, I guess and the immigration it, it, also helps, right? It's a relatively... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That, 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 that is part of the, the ease of doing business. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll mention, I'll tell you a story to, to that uh, in a second. But, you know, what you also need is to be surrounded by other countries which don't have that, right? And that creates, so to say, that, that, that uniqueness uh, because if you, um, you know, if, if everybody else would be Dubai, nobody would come here, right? And, and this country is, uh, I mean, Dubai is not a country, the country is the United Arab Emirates uh, and Dubai is an emirate within one of the seven emirates uh, that make make up the, the UAE. Um, and uh, so Dubai has uh, around about 3 million people, uh, you know, has, a, has a reputation that clearly punches above its weight. Uh, you have in, in China, I don't know how, how many, perhaps 100 uh, cities which are bigger than, than Dubai, but 
nobody has ever heard of them, uh, at least, uh, you know, on, on the left side of the world, so to say. Well, um, we know about Wuhan now. So. We do. <laughs> I, I went to Wuhan in, in May last year, and um, I thought it's a, it's a stunning city. It's, it's something futuristic that, that people don't seem to appreciate at, at any point now or before or, or past the pandemic. It has the hypermodern tunnels. Uh, it has these futuristic bridges. It has uh, um, highways snaking around skyscrapers. There's hundreds of skyscrapers, um, and they're all brand new. They all like literally have. They, they didn't exist two years ago, three years ago. And I thought I'm I'm I was stunned by well developed many parts of Wuhan where, um, and I think it's 15, 20 million people. It's a ginormous city. It's like New York City that no one has ever heard of. It doesn't have a huge service economy, which is generally the issue in most of China. But otherwise, yeah. those are magnificent cities. Amazing. So, so you're just giving me a tip. Uh, when, when, when I have time, that's something that I'm looking forward to to do. And my wife and I would would love to do is to you know to travel through China. We've been to China a couple of times, but uh, you know you end up going to say Shanghai uh, and Beijing and, uh, and and that's it. And it's, you know the, the country is, is is so large and diverse um, that I would love to to take the time to travel through uh, through China and and you know. Uh, I guess that Wuhan would be a, a fantastic destination in the sense, especially you know, in the next year or so, um, uh, to, to 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 get to get uh, uh, value for money there because I'm, I'm I bet there won't be many tourists. <laughs> yes, I don't think so either. No, I mean it's kind of like going to Chernobyl, right? You go to the epicenter; it's like the dark tourism, and you want to see the lava coming out of that volcano. Right, right, right. Um, right. What, China so, is, so, an odd, so, is an odd beast, right? For for. At, for, for a traveler, it's a tough place to be. It's not. It's just not very welcoming. Let's put it this way. It's a. It's brand new, and it's often. It's a very modern place, but it's not welcoming to anyone. I think this is not not a. This is not a bug. This is a feature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, uh, so. Um, but you know, coming back to to the story of of Dubai and the fact that it's yep. become a, a safe haven, right? The. If, if you if you are uh, a say an entrepreneur or a, you know a, a wealthy person in you know in the countries surrounding us say you know Iraq uh, Saudi Arabia um, uh, Syria Yemen uh, you know all the, all the way to Russia the stands uh, even India and you know, Pakistan uh, you know probably you could you could count 30 40 countries uh in 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 our vicinity oh you, I, I completely forgot africa if you take you know the entire uh, north africa or or east africa uh, you know there is say say a couple of hours flights uh um from from dubai there's there's a lot of economies which are very unstable right which have uh, had a history of uh, booms and busts and, and political instability and uh, 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 lack of respect for private property and uh, uh, volatility in terms of their 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 uh, legal system. So if you come from one of those countries and you make you you know you have made money there, you would be crazy to keep your entire wealth in that country because you know things. Things go wrong, right? And and what you need to have if you come from one of those countries is you need to have a plan B. You need to have a, 
uh, you know, ideally uh, uh, part of your wealth somewhere else. And historically, that has been the role of, say, Switzerland, uh, for, for many Arab countries, because of the traditional links, historical links with, with the United Kingdom, uh, many people would say, you know, would want to buy a flat in, in, in London and have a bank account in London and uh, in the UK and, you know, have their money there. Um, some, some other countries had to have a, a bigger affinity to the US. They would go to, you know, wealthy people would take their money to the US and have their bank accounts in the US or property in the US. That's changed significantly after 9-11, where the banking system, uh, first in the US and then in, in, in Europe as well, in the UK, uh, became very um, weary of kind of international money, money going around. Might, you know, might have been legal money, but, uh, you know, all the KYC regulations that were introduced and so on and so forth. And, and also culturally, right? If, if you, let's say you are a you're you're an Arab and uh, um, you 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 would traditionally have either uh, bought property in the U.S. or or uh, or in the U.K. and all of a sudden you're not welcome anymore. Um, you know, I, I, I'm I'm perhaps you know exaggerating and putting it in in, in black and white, and that's uh, not the case uh, in most cases, but but you don't feel welcome anymore after 9-11. So what do you do, right? Um, you, what is the alternative? And Dubai has become the alternative. Yeah. Uh, so that, so that instead of uh, buying your properties in London, now you buy a property in Dubai. And you take well, your money to Dubai, right? I, because I, here- I agree with you. I, re I agree with you, but isn't that a bit of a secondary effect? So that, you know, you can't, you can't, something that is like 9-11, you might have a similar event with China in the next 10 years where you, you say you can't predict it, but it might be 30 years until that happens or it might never happen. It might be China is going to be everyone's best buddy again in 10 years from now. So what, what, I, what I was hoping, and I mean, Dubai's success is, is you're absolutely right. It's, it seems to happen over time in pretty much any sector they touch. And uh, you, you were saying earlier that it can only be a success because the other countries are pretty crappy and or they are at least more crappy than Dubai. The question is, but that's very relative, right? So if, if you think about Hong Kong a hundred years ago, it was probably a crappy place, but it was less crappy than China. And mm -hmm. there is a differential certainly that you need in order to pull this off, but it's, it's a moving target. So, is there is there room? And you, you said earlier, kind of no, but I was feeling there is more room for you know Rwanda that kind of tries to get to the into the same place now in Africa, and there might be in the Ghana that it actually gets there too. So relatively small places, but they um, I don't know maybe it's luck, maybe it's just sheer determination get into a similar vibe. Um, and I think the money that that Dubai had to to beforehand to put at this, I think helps, but often the, the, uh, the conviction of people who are steering this place, um, the respect for the rule of law, the, the way they support entrepreneurship, this is actually more important. So you, what I'm trying to say is you could pull this off in the Congo if you have the right mindset without yes. a ton of capital. 
Definitely, and I didn't want to imply that this is it, right? Uh, uh, that you know, in 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 fifty years' time, we we'll look back and we you know, there won't be any other uh, stories like this. What what I I wanted to imply is that obviously, you know, let's say there are two hundred countries in the world, you can't have two hundred devices. You you can you can yeah, only have uh, you know a handful or two handfuls of 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 those kind of safe havens because that per definition. Uh, it is required in order to be a safe haven. You you require uh, to have uh, you know uh, a, um, a vicinity neighbors uh, which are less attractive than you are, right? But um, that's a bit of a zero go- zero sum game. I, I feel like we can grow that pie. You know, the 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 world has come a long way um, since Malthusian made this argument that if you have more people, everyone's going to die because yeah. we're just going to um, clean the trees and, and eat all the leaves. That didn't happen because we have this huge boom in productivity. And right. that is driven, in my mind, by the family-style entrepreneur. Um, well, not necessarily only, but this is a big contribution. It's this this idea of everyone wants to be an entrepreneur and sees this as a big contribution to a society um, or a small contribution, but it becomes a big contribution over time because it raises up productivity. And then the development model, I felt that, that Dubai has is special in this. I don't think it needs to be that all the other countries around it make it special. It's it's just, it's, and that's special in the sense of it allows very, very way less freedoms than you would expect for a liberal place, um, see, coming from, from Europe or the US these days. But it reduces your personal freedoms like Singapore did, um, outlines away, hammers it through for 20 years and then hope it works. But it's, 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 it's somehow stable, something that you can't say about the U.S. anymore. Um, well, at least not on a, on a superficial level. Right, right. It, it's, it's, it's an interesting debate. And I heard the, uh, one of your previous podcasts, uh, I think it was with uh, Chris, uh, where, you know, you, you, you touch upon the, that, that uh, tension that you have between development on the one hand and freedom on the other. Uh, and, and, you know, to what extent... Uh, you know, if if you don't have development, uh, so if, if 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 people are poor, uh, to what extent that ends up limiting the freedom, right? So uh, so yeah. it, it's it's a it, it's a it's a very interesting debate, um, and uh, you know I I, I feel um, obviously the, the definition of freedom is uh, I guess uh, personal, and uh, it. it what is important for for you might not be important for me, um, and uh, so I. There, there is a fascinating thesis um, that some people came up with, and they said the total amount of freedom everywhere you go in the world is basically the same. And I was like, "Are you crazy? You go to China, it just can't be can't be true." But you know, if you go and, and look at the average life of most Chinese they're not as limited as you might think they are. Yes, they can't have open criticism of their political system, but there's a lot of, um, you know, under the carpet criticism and a lot of local criticism that you can easily voice. Um, There's a ton of freedom in more personal aspects of their life that you can't enjoy in the U.S. There's, for instance, you you can smoke wherever you want. I mean, I'm not a smoker. I don't like smoking, but there is a ton of freedom allowed in in places you you wouldn't expect it. So it kind of grows on me this argument that the total amount of freedom is very similar wherever you go because it's it's something built into the 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 deep 
parts of the brain, you, you search for this freedom. If you don't get it in certain avenues, say political or say economic, you find it in others. Um, now, this might not actually grow the company economically, but it still gives you a life you're happy with. Well, hundred percent. That that that's uh, that's a fascinating discussion. And uh, you know, if, like if social I, needs, right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 So so if if I um, just to give you an uh, you know stupid example from 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 today, I this morning I went to I went to the beach, right? Uh, and I I live in Dubai. We have a beautiful beach here, uh, and so we have probably the best infrastructure in, in the world, uh, at least that I'm aware of, uh, in, in a city. Uh, so, you know, I I can jump into my car and within a couple of minutes, I am uh, right at the beach. Uh, if, if I, you know, if I, if I lived in a country with a very bad infrastructure, I might be not far away from the beach as, as, I, as I am, uh, but I, I wouldn't be able to get there, right? So the, the, I would have, even if it's not forbidden to go to the beach, right? But the, the, the fact that we have a great infrastructure here enhances my freedom, right? Yeah. And that, that is something that, um, you know, ha- has to be counted some way. Um, and, and yes, you know, here we will, we'll, the UAE is a monarchy. Uh, and, uh, you know, whilst we have, by and large, freedom. There are certain topics that you know are, are not not welcomed uh, that that people discuss in public, right? So, uh, as long as you adhere to that, you're fine, and uh, and then you can enjoy the the fact that you know we have a fantastic infrastructure which enhances my freedom, right? So it's uh, it's indeed a, a complicated equation, and ultimately, it's. Um, you know the the weightings in in each one of the this uh, thousand factors that flow into that equation are very personal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the US obviously has a has a strong focus on political freedom and uh, the freedom of speech, which I think are great values. But you, you pay the price in other avenues um, that where the US hasn't just hasn't delivered. Um, a lot of freedom do it has got more free i feel so i think the the general direction of most countries is the same they allow more freedom which is only good because if you have more 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 variability in this people can develop in a way that it's useful to society or useful to someone around them so there there is no hopefully there is no no way back into the dark ages that people now predict with COVID. That's you know, a lot of free, personal freedoms have been extremely restricted. No. We in California can't go out after 10 p.m. and um, for a while we couldn't we couldn't go anywhere. And uh, all the, uh, the most of the businesses that involve any kind of social interaction have been closed for a long time. That is a very strict policy, very similar to what what happened in Melbourne. We, we're very similar. We're a little it's less enforcement here because nothing is really enforced. But it is something where you feel like. <laughs> This keeps going. You, this whole place is going to be in trouble. And you know, it's always fifteen days, and these fifteen days turn into fifteen months, and then they turn into fifteen years. That's kind of the the fear that people have. That might not be true, but it's it's it would be a striking reversal to this policy of like everything's getting a little more free over time. Right. Let's hope yeah. it doesn't happen. Yeah. Well, one more thing that we're struggling with here in the U.S., and I I know you you might have an answer there is education. We 
we have this policy in the U.S., especially in the, in the coastal states and cities, is that we throw a lot of money in education. And uh, I looked up the numbers. Um, New York is now at $26,000 per year per student. That includes kindergarten. So this is not necessarily high school. This is kindergarten and K-5 to um, up to, to high school. That's an average. I'm stunned by that figure. It's a little lower um, here on the West Coast, somewhere around 15000 dollars per year per student. I find this a crazy number is given how effective, especially primary education can be at a low level, at least I feel, and um, low level of, of investment. And uh, just having good teachers, having good values in the education system, and having a way for people to evolve out of like putting up challenges, not, not um, underestimating what even younger kids are able to do. Um, what do you think is the future of private education? How does how does that work for your startup? Well, first, first of all, I think that it, it is a, a clear uh, trend in in many, many different countries in the world, notably emerging markets, but, uh, uh, you know, all, all over the world, you have a very strong trend whereby the uh, the private sector is gaining market share from the uh, state-sponsored education sector. So I looked at multiple countries uh, and I've, I've worked in multiple countries in, in private education and the the picture has been is pretty much is very similar in, in many countries, many countries in Africa, many countries in, in Asia, um, Latin America uh, as well. Where, if you look at the the pie of education schools in 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 that in that country, and uh, and many of those countries that I that I looked into. Uh, you know, the pie 20 years ago was 99% of students would be attending uh, state schools and 1% would go to private schools. And uh, you look at it 10 years later, 10 years ago, say, and that 1% grew to, say, 5%. And you look at it last year and that 5% would have grown to 10%. So basically, over the course of say, 20 years or so, uh, the market share uh, went up 10x, right? Yeah. Um, and that, that, that is on the back of the, the sad fact that uh, state-sponsored education in many, many countries has been a disaster. And, and that typically, in turn, is connected with the fact that... Um, uh, schools or the education sector in, in, in general, but specifically schools, has become a kind of a political playground uh, for politicians to uh, get votes and uh, you know uh, give favors to um, to either directly to people or through unions. And yeah. when when you know. When you have unions that are strongly involved in the education space, you inevitably, unfortunately, that is the case. Uh, uh, this is not a judgment call on, on 
on the merits of unions, uh, but I'm just looking at the reality at, at the um, at, at the outcomes. What you end up with is that the in in the equation between the interest, you know, taking into uh, you know, you have different stakeholders, obviously, as in every other uh, sector, uh, and you have um, you know the the teachers, you have the students, you have the parents, um, and you know society at large, and you end up, you know, the question is, is the student the ultimate objective and the focus of the efforts of the entire sector and the outcomes of this of the students, or is the sector ending up uh, as a as a as a, as a job production machinery for for teachers uh, which are protected by the unions and are not being made accountable to the outcomes uh, of students so that 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 that, that situation has uh, been I've seen it in country after country after country and obviously parents realize that and they see that the outcomes are suffering uh, you know, so that the children, the future of the children is compromised uh, because of the entire system prioritized the interests of the teachers instead of the interests of the students. And that uh, has, you know, led to parents voting with their feet and their pockets and saying, you know what, I'd rather send my child to a private school that uh, will prioritize my, uh, you know, the, the educational outcomes of my 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 son or daughter, uh, as opposed to those from other stakeholders in the, in the system. So that that is basically the the trend in many many countries. You could o- almost say worldwide, uh, and that has led to a strong trend, a strong uh, uh, um, growth of uh, of private education and private schools. And, and that, uh, you know, when you think of private schools in, uh, say, in, in Europe, sometimes, I guess, in the U.S., you typically, you, 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 get, you get the sense of, you, or you get the aftertaste of that being something uh, for elites, something which is very expensive. Um, but it doesn't have to be like that. In, in fact, there's been, in, in Africa and Asia, there's been a, a gigantic trend for low-cost uh, private education. Um, and you have, um, you know, in, in, in many places, schools that cost, uh, you know, say a dollar a day, right? So this is, this is very, very, very basic schools. It's not the school that would have, a, you know, a, a swimming pool or, or, or a great sports hall, but it would be just the basic, very basic. But uh, parents are actually paying for those schools as opposed to sending them to the free state-sponsored schools because those schools are getting better outcomes. So, um, yeah, so, so I, 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 I guess, I guess that, that that is something that uh, is, is very, very interesting. Um, when you create a sense of accountability, uh, then outcomes go up, right? Uh, and when there is no accountability, outcomes suffer. So I, I fully uh, agree. I mean, I, I, I fully agree with the sentiment. 
the the obvious issue that I always find, and I this, I hope you have a, have a metric to solve this, is that schools, especially in the U.S., have been maybe not just in the U.S. everywhere. Education is measured as an input. It's very difficult to measure the output, and we we had standardized tests which kind of helped that along a little bit to give you an idea about what is the output in a specific field. The problem is that these tests are developed and then they're going to linger around for 20, 30 years. The skills that is measured in these tests have been important 20 years ago, but are not important anymore, um, at least from what, what we now anticipate the future is. So it's not a very flexible model in that sense that you, and I think schools in general, state-run schools are not a very flexible model because they, um, they give you a certain curriculum that was true when the baby boomers um, were around and these baby boomers had a very secure career path. You would go to high school, you would go to college, you would uh, send out a couple of CVs, uh, start an entry-level position, you do a decent job, not a terrible job, and you have a house, three children and two cars. And that was kind of guaranteed as long as you, you could screw up and become a criminal in the meantime. But if you don't screw up completely, this was not this was the average outcome of 90% of the people. That isn't true anymore, as we know. The the whole boom or society model might come back, but it's it's kind of gone. Nobody can afford houses anymore in most developed markets. It's maybe still true in, in developing markets like India, but in the developed markets, this is over because simply there's not enough productivity growth. You have less money than your parents for most young people. And that's going to be true until they at least 40 or 45. Um, so maybe it's because we live so much longer. But what I think is the problem is that the, the measuring of output, universities were a little bit better They were because they could always say, oh, on average, our graduates make that much money. And if you graduate from this college, you got to make that much money too. That was a little bogus in the first place and it's kind of falling apart now, but it's a little bit better a measure of output. So I'm curious, what measure of output you would you would apply to private schools, especially? Yeah, it's a great question, and and, and, and there is there is no um, uh, no perfect answer to to that, uh, to my knowledge. And um, in 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 terms of um, standardized uh, testing, the obviously the standardized tests have their their flaws um and it's it's difficult to measure things such as uh, you know creativity uh, out of a standardized test uh, and, and and things like creativity as you alluded to are going to play a, a more and more important role going forward when um you know ai and and robots uh, will not not uh, in the not too distant future, uh, start taking over more and more areas of of the economy, right? And um, so that everything that is repeat repeatable and can be can be can be learned by an algorithm uh, will sooner or later be replaced by uh, by a machine, and uh, creativity is something that you know. At least, not in the in the near future, uh, you know, will not be able to be replicated by by machines. So, um, I I've had some experience in the different, you know, looking at the different uh, the, the way different countries approach uh, the curricula, what is taught to children, um, and I 
I, I, I'm actually a big fan of the International Baccalaureate, uh, which is a curriculum that was developed in the 60s uh, by um, an, an international organization called the IBO, the, the International Baccalaureate Organization, originally for uh, sons and daughters of uh, diplomats that would, you know, move from country to country, taking their children with them and, you know, uh, they would want to have a kind of a standard curriculum where they, uh, if they move from one country to the other, ideally they can attend uh, an IB school uh, in the new country and they could seamlessly uh, transfer from, from one school to the other, as opposed to when you go to, say, a French school and then move to a German school or the other way around. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's very difficult. You, there's always a kind of um, a, a friction in, 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 in each one of those transfers uh, that um, ends up being detrimental for the student. So that was created with that, with that concept and has developed a, a very, uh, you know, a, a curriculum which, which stimu uh, stimulates the, um, what I think uh, are skills of, of the future. Uh, and fosters those those skills, which uh, so it, it instead of learning by heart uh, as you know, old school, literally old schools uh, would 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 do, and you know, in the times uh, in the times past when basically inform the access to information was uh, was difficult, right? So information was scarce, and and because of that, uh, you needed to press as much knowledge into your head because you needed to have that information handy uh, to potentially take decisions in the future. Um, so that that led to all, all this um, national uh, education curricula focused on, on, on the acquisition and the storage of information. And that obviously has radically changed over the course of the last uh, in particular 20 years right where where today basically uh, information is readily available uh, from anywhere uh, in a very easy way could be uh, certainly could be you know further improved but but it it's it's a it's a fantastic it's fantastic that today you can you know uh, ask siri about you know pretty much any question that you have and and you're likely to find a response uh, somewhere in the internet so, so that the access to information is no longer the main issue, um, but rather the a uh, the, the judgment whether the information that you're receiving is is uh, comes from from uh, reliable sources, whether that information is tainted by uh, some agendas, uh, and whether there are different points of views that need to be considered uh, as part of the same uh, you know question that you have right um, so so that 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 kind of checking of sources and and determining different vantage points uh, for the same question uh, are basically part of the core of of what you're teaching children you're not teaching children to you know to uh, what was the you know what was the, the the year of the of the of the uh, 
French Revolution or or you know uh, you're not teaching them giving them information but you you're you're teaching them how to find information how to make judgment calls about the quality of the information how to find different perspectives uh, and and then to take a decision out of uh, you know th- that that process so you're teaching them how to be, uh, how, how to make decisions, how to be creative, how to uh, confront the situation for the first time, uh, and and then be able to look for, um, for 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 information that you need to take a decision in that particular context. Yeah, I think so that a- is something. That, that is something that that the international baccalaureate uh, curriculum uh, does very well. Um, uh, uh, and I, you know, I, I know it because I am in the field of education, but I also saw it in my own son who attended an IB school, and uh, you know that th- that that is that is something that I find is is the curriculum of the future. And there's many, something to it. I I I feel yeah. like you that there's that's definitely the challenge for a lot of students um, these days, and I see it with my kids that. Um, that have access to information and kind of can't, they can't fathom reading any kind of source material. I think it's been going on for the last 30 years. And you, you're right that the amount of information that's out there kind of replaces, if you can get it bias-free, it replaces your own research. The kind of the, the, the only, I think this is the way to go for 99% of our future. But there is 1% left, and I think this is the 1% where you can become a true innovator and contribute to the society, is where you understand everything. So you've read all the source codes that are available. You've gone down to the atom of this problem, and you came up with something that is a unique solution. And we, I, I have made this example now because I've been reading the source code. I've been reading the Bible and related materials. I've been reading the Quran, um, the New Testament. And I felt like everything I knew about religion, just reading this book, um, with, there's a little bit of commentary to it, but mainly just reading the original text gave me an insight I would have never gotten otherwise. And you can say, yeah, of course, you spend more time with it so you get a better view. But I feel like there's a, there is a different connection uh, that you get once you read the source material. And um, it's many, many entrepreneurs and many of the most important scholars in the beginning of the 20th century, most of them were polymaths. So they had a very deep experience, not just in one field or another. They looked really deep down into, and they knew all the facts, right? They did have, they did have memorized tons of facts. That's probably where this, this idea came from, that we need to put so many facts in our brain. And they spent a lot of time in a couple of different fields, and then they put those things together and um, made a real impact. And I feel once the, the trouble is, and I understand that, it's impossible to digest all this information, but if as more we specialize, as more we give children just the ability to skim the headlines and then realize is this important or not, kind of make a, make a judgment call, make a, make almost like a, like, a, like a gut feeling call, should I know more about this or not? And most of the time is usually not, at least for my kids, they're like, oh, I can watch a YouTube video next week and I know more than this whole book. <laughs> um, because I don't have to read, so uh, leave me alone. And there is an argument to this. It's much more efficient. But the trouble is you you lose this ability to truly innovate 
if you don't get down to the sources. And that requires a lot of brute learning, kind of like AI learns, right? People don't know that, but if you launch an AI like GPT-3, what it does, it, it, it takes all the, the knowledge, all the data in its main memory, and then it computes it. That's why they are so memory and compute hungry. You can't run an AI model with just half the data set. Like it's impossible. You need to put all the data in there and it needs to run it one main process. You can't even parallelize it. Once the model is built, it's very quick. It's like an index. But while you're learning, you, there's no shortcut to the brute, brute facts. And I feel this is tough that, and maybe that's, there's no other alternative, but most students today have no experience with ever going down to the source and then becoming an expert in that field, but not just in that field. I think it's what real innovation is driven by knowing a couple of different fields pretty well, and then you can make an impact because you just take it from one field to another and just you, you use this piece of technology and help society adopt it. And that's getting harder if you don't know anything deeply down anymore. Yes, uh, I 100% I, I agree with you. And I have anecdotally, I, I don't know if this is something uh, I, I, I haven't, haven't read any statistics about about the subject, but anecdotally, I have this the the feeling that uh, because of the social networks and internet and the pervasiveness of of uh, uh, you know all sorts of uh, sources of information, quote unquote, or or, or sources of destruction, uh, that has led to in particular, younger generations, say our, our children generation, uh, to read much less than what our generation read because we didn't have so many distractions, if you will, right? And and, and we didn't have uh, all, all, all these opportunities and, and, and options to uh, find, say, a uh, uh, Kind of a reader's digest uh, um, in in YouTube, in 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 internet, in in the social in social net networks where you you know you don't need to read the book anymore. You can just get a, a snippet of it. Uh, you know the entire book in 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 ten minutes. And the main idea is 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 uh, 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 given to you in a, in a in a succinct way, right? And and, and indeed you lose. Uh, at the very least, all the nuances of the book, uh, it, but in a you know worst case scenario, you lose uh, the the main learnings because sometimes, or I guess that that's that's how the brain works, right? You need to you need to make the effort to uh, acquire the knowledge in a in, in a meaningful way uh, so that you will be able to to use it in, in the future. If if you just uh, watch a video, um, it's that, that the, the level of engagement that you have is is, is so low that you will, uh, you know, probably lose that knowledge very fast. Yeah, and our our you know our brain I think works just like an AI in that sense that it takes a ton of information that is very granular that doesn't have a meaning, and it 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 kind of mulls it through until you come up with a model where you feel like oh I've understood this. So when you when you read a long book, you don't remember the text. You only remember three, four, five main points. It's kind of the essence you take out of this. And that's kind of what an AI does too, right? The model, once it's built, it's very quick and, and can reply immediately with a, to a query. And what, what, what people realize is that 
building a model is quite a skill. Um, like a brain needs to train that ability to build models. So brute force learning, as crazy as it sounds, it gives you the need to come up with a model because you will just, well, at least eventually, because otherwise you you just, you, you can't, can't function anymore. So you've got to come up with a way to compress this and come to a higher and higher level of abstraction using anecdotal evidence, using any kind of random data that you use to build this model in your mind. And um, that's very similar to machine learning right now, and I guess this will only get better. But if we, we are just using the learning, so we could say, oh, we just make a model, a meta model. So we use different models from different, different people, just um, use them as kind of individual source of knowledge. I think that would work too. Um, I think this is what, what, what's probably the future, what it's going to be. But in between, the trouble is if you don't realize that all the models look the same and you, nobody has ever seen the source, you get very quickly lost. It's kind of like you, you have this culture, the, the Holy Roman Empire in the ninth century, and you've lost all the text were from, the, from the original New Testament, and you lost all the text from, um, from the Greeks. And you're like, hmm, we don't know how we got here, but it's better be right because that's the only thing we know. I kind of feel like we are at the same level now. Strangely enough, although we have so much information, it prevents us from figuring out these things that are important enough to go back to the source. And we end up with this, you know, one directional um, monoculture that is not helping to create the things we need, which is variability, right? We need a lot of people working on different things. So eventually the things that some of them will come through and make a huge impact. It's a fascinating topic. Uh, and, and one one story that I wanted to mention, which is tangentially connected to what we're talking about, is uh, that, you know, there's been a lot of progress in the last 10 years in particular uh, in our understanding on how the brain actually works. Um, with the aid of technology and, you know, uh, Imaging, computer imaging, uh, at, 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 the, at, at the very granular level uh, of the brain, kind of molecular level, um, there, there, there is. I mean, we are at the very beginning of that journey of understanding how the brain works. But, but you know, it seems that uh, we, we are getting snippets of of, uh, of um, you know, kind of revelations uh, which are absolutely fascinating and. Um, I, I was reading recently about uh, something called uh, flashbulb memories. Have you heard of that? No, I haven't. What's that? Right. So, um, so a, a flashbulb memory is a, a memory created in an event that was kind of a shocking event, right? Um, and that could be, you know, for you as a person, um, let's say, you know, the death of... of uh, some close close relative, or uh, or you know, an accident or something like that, um, or there are kind of societal, uh, and those are particularly interesting uh, because they can be analyzed in a in a in a sci- kind of scientific way, societal uh, flashbulb events, and uh, these are things to, like, uh, um, you know, for instance. Uh, uh, you know, 9-11 uh, or uh, the explosion of the Challenger or, uh, you know, the death of Lady Di uh, or, you know, th- things things that everybody remembers, right? Uh, yeah. if, mm-hmm. if you have, 
um, if you were alive. Uh, well, if you if you're on Twitter, you won't you won't remember any of those. But yes, okay, <laughs> I know I know where you're coming from. Right. So and, and so basically, the I'm sure if I ask you, do you remember uh, where you were uh, when you first heard what happened uh, on 9/11? Uh, I'm, I'm sure you will still remember today, right? Even even though sure. it's like yeah. al- almost 20 years ago, um, and and you know you would remember probably you will have a detailed picture of what you did, where you were, uh, how you reacted, how you felt uh, when 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 that when when 11 was unfolding, right? Yeah, and that's you know basically. Um, Everybody feels the same, and um, everybody has the sense that our those memories are very accurate. And we tend to think of our uh, of our memories as something like uh, you know uh, a hard drive. Uh, our brain is a hard drive where uh, a memory is stored uh, for later retrieval in a, in a kind of uncorrupted way. And in particular for 9-11, for other flash bulb events, they did it as well. But in particular for, for 9-11, they, they did uh, this gigantic social experiment where um, basically immediately after 9-11, uh, you know, within a week or so, uh, I, I don't remember exactly, but, you know, Im- immediately after, they uh, got these testimonies from uh, thousands and thousands of people asking questions such as, you know, where were you? Uh, uh, how did you find out? Uh, how, you know, uh, what did you do? Uh, how did you feel? Things like that, right? Um, and then they repeated the same questionnaire with the same people after a year, after two years, and after you know, 10 years, and they, they, they keep on doing it. And listen to this. Round about, I don't remember exactly the number, but let's call it let's call it half of the memories were wrong initially, or just less, as it over time as it progressed over the, over, over time. In particular, okay. after the first year, in particular after the first year, mm-hmm. um, so that and, and and there were cases such as you know people that had written handwritten the responses the first time around, immediately after 9-11. And a year later, two years later, they would, they would, they would basically give, give a completely different response. And when confronted with their own handwriting from, you know, immediately after 9-11, they would look at it and say, I, I don't know. Yeah, this is my handwriting, but I don't know why I wrote that. Yeah, I, 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 I must have lied because I remember exactly what happened. Yeah, right. Yeah, and, and so and when when I when I when I read about it, I, I mean, I I I I, I kind of goose, got uh, goose skin because I, I was I was I thought, oh my god, that means basically that most of my memories are actually corrupted. And what happens in the brain is that every time you retrieve, it's not a hard drive, it's not a digital device that you you, you know you read it, and 
and then that doesn't change uh, because it's written in a, in, a, in, a, in a stable substrate. It's not like that. It is like a little bit like Schrodinger's cat, uh, you know, uh, that once you observe it, once you read it, you bring it back from your memory into your conscious mind. And that apparently during our, our, uh, our dreams, uh, the function of dreams is to, you know, to, 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 uh, uh, to put memories uh, in in the uh, long term memory, so to say, short term memory to transfer from short term memory to long term memory, and that process is corrupted by other experiences that you've had in that time. So when you when you recall a memory, um, and especially those traumatic memories are, are things that you recall very often, they come back to the present and they get corrupted by the present. I think it's called time slicing, where you you end up confusing the the the, the, the chronology of the events, and you you mix things from the present into that memory. Yeah. And then I the brain yeah. tries to uh, smoothen things up and make a uh, kind of a co- cohesive, co- coherent story out of it, and and you end up with something that is your memory, and you might be highly confident about that being, you know, uh, what happened, but that doesn't have anything to do with what actually happened, right? Well, they, and, they, and they say that they say that when when they um, call accident or victims, um, people who have observed an accident and um, then the victims or while the investigation is going on, they, they pull witnesses and the some most of the accounts they say are completely unreliable. And the problem is that the the brain didn't know that this is an important thing that's going on. Saying a car accident is not important until the accident happens. Everything that went on before it is like everyday life and gets gets not memorized, gets completely filtered out. But mm-hmm. as you realize later on that this was actually important, the brain tries to come up with a story that led to it and that usually has to make sense or it has to be coherent and needs to be something that from your experience is something that could happen like this because exactly i don't know people with uh with that have that look like a race car they drive too fast and they drive recklessly so if a race car is in a crash you would assume it was too fast and ran into someone else but you actually don't know but as a witness because you always feel like it is an important event and i want to help out you have this strange desire you make up stories that led up to the event and maybe even after that because suddenly this is important and you feel like you know but actually it wasn't and that is scary. I mean, I totally agree with you. The, the, the reliance on memory is shaky at best. And um, as it gets older, I fully agree. The, these memories, they also change right, in, in the way we perceive them emotionally. That might be a negative memory, but 20 years later, we feel like, oh, that wasn't so bad. It was actually fun. And um, the, most of the really negative memories, they just disappear. There's a, there's a lot going on that we don't have a lot of control over. And someone put all these mechanisms in our brain, right? Someone designed all this and we seem to be the only one on this planet who have that right? no no other animals seem at least we can't communicate if they have that same system i i find that strange that all the the other apes and all the other mammals around us none of them is even close to consciousness i mean some make some progress they can use tools but the level of consciousness that we've acquired in the last thirty thousand years they seem at least a few million years away from that that's really spooky when you think about it. You're like, someone else helped that process along quite a bit, probably. Or maybe it was just one big accident. 
Yeah. It works too well, right? <laughs> the system is too well designed over and in genetically the last 30,000 years since we have the first cave drawings, maybe it's 50,000 years ago, but I, I think the last time I saw the research was around 30,000 years ago. So that's clear sign of consciousness art. Um, it's not it's not long enough to really change the genetic makeup that we have. It must have been the same more or less 30,000 years ago. Um, this whole fine tuning of the brain isn't 30,000 years is not enough to put it in our DNA. It's enough, you know, for, for, for knowledge that comes up like cloud knowledge, culture, these things um, definitely shape us. But these core functions of the brain, they must have been there for a long, long time. And strangely enough, no other animal has it. That makes me really suspicious what happened there. <laughs> right? It makes no sense. Right? If we are so animalistic, why wouldn't the animals have the same thing more or less now? Well, uh, 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 according to uh, um, books such as a uh, great book called uh, Spark from uh, the author is uh, John Grady, um, or also there is another book called uh, Born to Run uh, by Christopher McDowell. Um, and they both talk about the uh, importance in, in evolution uh, of um, uh, we, we, are, we are the only species uh, that uh, can run in, you know, in, 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 in two, uh, on, on our two legs. Uh, and we are the species that, that the only species that can run really long distances. Yeah. Um, and apparently, one of the keys to our survival, and apparently, uh, sometime, if, if you look at the genetic pool of uh, mankind, uh, apparently we go back to only, you know, very few individuals, right? Yes, one couple. Uh, so I did the I, DNA test, and they, they said there was one person twenty-seven thousand five hundred years ago, and that is your mother and everyone else's mother. And I'm like, okay, thank you very much. That's not <laughs> what I wanted to go. know. Yeah. Right? It makes you feel really weird. <laughs> yeah, and, and and so apparently there was there was kind of a near extinction event for 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 Homo sapiens, um, and one of the things that helped us to survive was the fact that we could actually outrun uh, game, right? So so we we um, uh, uh, there's there's a lot of animals which are uh, can run much faster than what we can uh, for short distances. But uh, we are the only animal that can run a marathon, right? Um, and, and apparently that has been a significant advantage in evolution. And in order to be able to run long distances, you need uh, two things. You need a, uh, um, a, a very complicated uh, coordination machinery uh, so, so that you know you you're able to keep the the balance, uh, you know, on one leg at a time, and uh, you know, moving the way we move when we run, and and you so for that you need a lot of computational ability, uh, i.e., a strong you know a big brain, and second you need a uh, a brain that is able to uh, have uh, you know, spatial uh, orientation. In, in a way that uh, that goes beyond you know long distances um, so in the savanna you would uh, need to you know to to uh, uh, 
to, to walk for long distances and then be able to, after a couple of days, come back to you where your tribe is uh, with whatever you, you manage to hunt. Um, and in order to have that spatial orientation and the ability to kind of map your environment in your head, uh, you need a you need a you know, significant computational abilities uh, uh, as well. So these two things combined apparently had led to a, um, uh, a evolutionary advantage, which uh, would justify the cost of having a, such a costly brain that consumes, you know, uh, a, a, a third of, or something like a quarter to a third of, of uh, your daily calories. Uh, and that has all sorts of issues that, you know, uh, 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 the, the infant mortality is, is large because our brains are so big that the birth canal is too, too narrow for our, for our heads and so on and so forth, right? So, so all these things generated a significant, uh, comp- a significant uh, evolutionary advantage and has had the great side effect that you can use the same instrument to do math, right? And, and, so, so that that ended up being a, in a way, a, you know, an accident of evolution that we ended up being this, uh, you know, animal that can uh, can do math and can develop language and hence create memories that can be passed from generation to generation and you know in that that's, way that's a big significant. Step. That's a big step. Saying you know because there's a lot of other animals <clears throat> they obviously don't run as fast or don't run as long, but there's a lot of animals in the savanna that can almost do the same as running a marathon um, on four legs, but they might only do 10 miles or 15 miles, but they can do, and they know the territory, uh, like like lions, they know where they have to be and, and, and positioning to all the other lions in the area. And, you know, I mean, this is definitely an advantage, but it, saying that this pure, it's quite a step to say <clears throat> the ability to develop a spatial intelligence, move to consciousness. I think that's, for me, that doesn't add up, but I mean, this, we don't know the story. There's tons of other factors probably left. Um, what I'm trying to refer to is Zechariah Sitchin. So I don't know if you ever read him. Um, it's a fascinating book. Um, well, he obviously comes up with a with a science fiction story, but it sounds when you when you look at it, it sounds much more plausible um, than the, the gyrations we have to go through in the evolution of thinking that marks this big step because it doesn't seem like it would predict it. Who knows what actually happened? Right, right, and 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 the the beautiful movie two thousand one Space Odyssey uh, basically hints at that, right? That, that there is there is an intelligence, uh, superior intelligence that uh, goes from from uh, from uh, planet to planet, so to say, trying to nudge the evolution uh, at at at, the, at just the right time, uh, and you know, give that little push uh, in the right direction for. For, for evolution to occur and, and to run its course uh, into this higher way. So that, that, that's, that's indeed something that we uh, probably will never know uh, how it actually happened. Yeah. Um, hopefully our kids will figure out <clears throat> one day that will, that will be one of the things they teach you in, in primary school. Yeah. Um, one more thing, and that's obviously the, one of the judgment calls, one of the hardest judgment calls to make. But I know you always had a great in- intuition for what comes next. What do you think is, as a business, but also as for the next 10 years, what do you think is the next big thing? What are, what are stuff that we should all watch that are either undervalued or just so big that they're going to take off um, in a way that we don't anticipate right now? 
Oh, that's a that's a mean question. <laughs> you know, you're good at this. You're good at this. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I have to say, um, I mean, you're a capitalist, <laughs> excellent capitalist. The, the, clearly, the pace of change is accelerating, right? And and our, our ability to because we have brains which have been kind of hard coded to linearly extrapolate, uh, exponential processes are are completely uh, un, unnatural and unintuitive for for us, right? So if you calculate compounded interest over uh, a lifetime um, and you you know you you, you, you ask you ask a, a normal person uh, how, how much you think an interest rate of X uh, will will take you to in in uh, you know 50 years um, the, the the answers are completely completely off uh, typically yeah, because we simply don't, 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 don't have an intuitive uh, understanding of uh, compounding and you know if if you believe uh, I, I tend to i tend to like those those trains of, of thoughts people like uh, of people like uh, ray kurzweil that you know says that we are approaching the point of singularity uh, where uh, you know that acceleration that we've had uh, through more slow and through other uh, uh, you know positive uh, um, feedback loops uh, over the over the basically since the beginning of technology right but in particular in the last uh, couple of decades um the ability to forecast how things actually turn out is is uh, will become less and less uh, effective actually uh, so we have to be very humble about this uh, and 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 recognize that we are intrinsically unable to to look far into the future right uh, so i mean if, if you look at uh, projections from, uh, say, fifty years ago or, or so, um, uh, or if you look at things, you better, like, not, you know, you better not look. That's really depressing because we should have had <laughs> flying cars. And well, you know, if I tell this to my kids, they're like, uh, "What?" Um, they think the world without an iPad is Stone Age, but they they realize that we had all these projections in the seventies, and they were very linear, right? Because it changed so much change yeah. in the fifties and sixties, and then yeah. nothing happened since then outside of a four you core industries. So that's really depressing. So I better better not look into those. I I, I myself, right, I, I have to have to recognize, that, you know, I, I was sitting right at the heart of it. My first, I had my first email address in 1992. I, I was working in a research lab uh, at the very beginnings of internet when Netscape became, you know, was a thing. And, yeah. uh, uh, you know, I, uh, I, I was right in the middle of it, right? And if you would have asked me back then, uh, you know, that that we can have a handheld device that uh, basically has all the knowledge in the world accessible to it, uh, I, I, I probably I, I wouldn't have been able to predict it, right? Um, so it's um, uh, it, it's humbling. It's it's it, it is it is uh, it is something that is. Uh, uh, at the same time, uh, so intellectually stimulating and, in, and interesting, uh, but also so prone to errors that, uh, you know, you, you can only say, um, I just, uh, I, I, I just uh, need to keep an open mind and, and try to, uh, to recognize things as they evolve, but, uh, but, but be mindful that uh, I simply won't be able to, uh, to get a, a, 
a good hit ratio because these things uh, are developing so fast, right? So if, th th that said, um, I think that uh, what is going to happen, this is, uh, you know, not only related to technology, but also a little bit of geopolitics. It, clearly, over the last couple of years, we've had uh, a, a kind of a, a tech war going on in, in the world between mostly, you know, China and the U.S., but uh, uh, there's there's been a side battle there with Europe as well, uh, where, you know, the Europeans are, are looking at those tech giants and uh, they are alleged invasion of, uh, of uh, privacy, personal privacy, and, 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 and so on. And, and uh, the Europeans have clearly a completely different attitude to uh, those things as, as the Americans, right? So, um, and you have in, in, in we, we have lived in a world which clearly has uh, benefited hugely from uh, globalization and, and specialization and uh, the um, the basically we, we we have come become accustomed that things get uh, uh, created and produced in the place where it's is most uh, you know effective to do it uh, or efficient to do it and and then uh, uh, parts uh, cross borders from one place to the other and get assembled here and get another piece get added here and then the border gets crossed again yet again and so on and so forth and I think that this is this is Clearly, this is a trend that is, uh, uh, in a way, reversing um, the trend of, of globalization. With this uh, trade war that we had uh, pre-COVID between the U.S. and China, uh, and the the fact that technology is becoming more and more uh, a, a geopolitical um, weapon, and the if you if you look at the situation of uh, of, of China, uh, China. You know clearly uh, that that is, they, uh, Xi Jinping has mentioned that uh, as uh, one of the main priorities of the country for for the next uh, decade or five years. So, you know they have these five year plans and uh, and they want to become self sufficient in, in in semiconductors, which is basically the only component where so so they they have become people say through stealing intellectual property, uh, uh, extremely, um, um, you know, uh, from, from being a, a nobody in the, in the world tech scene to being, to being uh, right up there with, 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 a, with uh, in, in, different, in different areas of technology, but right up there with, uh, with the main powers, uh, main technological powers of the world. And the one thing that they don't have is a semiconductor industry, right? And um, I think that uh, I've, I've never been to Taiwan, but I guess that I, uh, you know, th that that's been uh, when I noticed that this thing is coming up, right? I thought to myself, um, I need to go to Taiwan as soon as possible because who knows how long I will be able to go to Taiwan because it, it's that's just a matter of time. Yeah, it's just a matter of time before China uh, will take over Taiwan because Taiwan is the country of semiconductors. And that is the one puzzle piece that they don't have in their technological landscape. Yeah. And, uh, you know, de developing a, a home, homegrown uh, semiconductor industry is, is something that 
you know, takes decades. And they, uh, you know, are uh, in a rush, clearly, uh, to, to, to become self-sufficient in, in term, technological self-sufficient. And they don't have to, they don't have semiconductors. So I, I agree with I, that. I think the geopolitical um, landscape is definitely moving towards that. I don't know if you, you read Peter, Peter Stehan. He kind of predicts that retreat of Americans' global interest which have been, you know, supreme for the last 50, 60, 70 years. And uh, this will create a lot of problems and the reordering of this um, global system. And he actually predicts that China will aggressively, um, as you say, not just restore an economic self-sufficiency, but um, try to use um, external politics, foreign policy to kind of misdirect what's going to happen because the, the Chinese economy is extremely reliant on um, external suppliers, not just for food, but um, for tons of things um, that they now use raw materials. And then they, all their buyers are usually outside of, of even Asia. They're out there in Europe and the US. So they're extremely reliant on um, these value chains. And if America recedes, then if someone has to maintain these supply chains and this is going to be tricky who's going to take that over. And the idea seems that China will find a way to, to do this in a more aggressive way, which will spark a lot of pushback on a foreign policy. So there's less and less, I agree with you, there's less and less open trade, less and less um, other countries being able to sell their products wherever they want, which is kind of the case right now, right? Currently, you this global market protected by mostly um, kind of a British system held up by the Americans helps everyone to to take part in this. But if this falls apart and these shipping lanes are not being controlled anymore and it's like pirates everywhere, um, a lot of countries will be in big trouble. Well, so th there is this uh, great book uh, called Clash of Empires uh, by mm -hmm. Louis, Louis Vistengat. And he talks about basically that the, the world will, from coming from from what would you know used to be called the Pax Americana, uh, where you have one global hegemon, one global uh, power, uh, the U.S., uh, which basically was uh, completely um, alone in 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 its uh, in its international power projection, and and was basically the police of the entire world, and and there was uh, no. No other, no alternative, so to say. Uh, Francis Fukuyama wrote that book called *The End of History*, where basically said that we we, we ended up with a world that has uh, liberal democracies and capitalism, and that's it. That's that's the end of history. There is there isn't anything else, and uh, it turned out not to be the case. And what we are what we are uh, going into now is is this, uh, as explained in that book uh, that I mentioned just now, is. Uh, a multipolar world where where you have you know a, 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 an area of, of influence by the US and then an area of influence by China and uh, also you have uh, the European Union and an and area of influence to a lesser extent uh, kind of a rivalry between between all these kind of three big empires. Uh, and each one of them have their own uh, you know, currencies. You have the U.S. with the U.S. dollar, which has historically been the the international uh, uh, the, um, the, the, the 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 trade currency and and the, um, 
the, the number one currency in the world, but the, the emergence of the both the euro and, and the renminbi in, in, in China, uh, for in particular for their regions, right? And, 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 and China dominating uh, Asia uh, and, and, and certain other countries that are suppliers of raw materials, which uh, they need for, for their industrial machinery, right? So, uh, so that, that, that will lead in the tech world in turn, um, will lead to a, a world which is less integrated than what we were. So, you know, today we have uh, our mobile phone. We, you know, we, are, we simply assume that you travel anywhere and you will be able to use your mobile phone uh, because there is, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, 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 the technological standards, uh, GPS uh, uh, or CDMA are, are, you know, international standards and, and you would be able to simply use the same technology uh, in one country or, or the other. And, you know, if you look at the saga of uh, Huawei, uh, which has been basically, apparently they have the best 5G technology in the world at the moment. And uh, in spite of that, they've been banned from uh, certainly the US and pretty much most Western countries. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, because allegedly the Chinese are kind of uh, spying on us, right? So so, uh, we should we shouldn't install uh, Huawei equipment. And, and then um, you have things like the, you know, the, the, the daughter of the founder of Huawei being kept in, in, in Canada as um, kind of a proxy for, uh, or as, as, as a retaliation for the fact that they did businesses with, uh, with Iran uh, and Iran is in the blacklist of the U.S. and and they they did it you know completely outside of the jurisdiction of the U.S. But this, the U.S. says hmm, you you actually did business Lovely in jurisdiction generally. Um, I mean, yeah, right. They, so, if we and, want to and, push and, it, and and you use you use the U.S. dollar, so you you sold yes. uh, uh, and, and got paid in U.S. dollars. U.S. dollar happens to be our currency, so our currency, our jurisdiction, right? Yeah. So uh, and. and and, and that so th- this is the first these are the first skirmishes of of uh, of what's going to become clearly a, you know a, a technological rivalry because the U.S. does not want to lose the uh, uh, leadership in 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 the world of tech right um, and and China has come a long way uh, to the extent that now the U.S. has woken up and says uh, you know w- we can't allow this to happen and then you had uh, the uh, TikTok, uh, um, you know, saga over the over the last couple of months as well, and you know, this is just started, right? So we will end up in in ten years' time in a world where uh, potentially you won't be able to use your devices when you go to China, right? Uh, because the technology will will have diverted completely from one place to the other, and that will lead to again a world which you know. Remember back in the days. Uh, 10, 20 years ago when, you know, you, you couldn't go from one country to the other so easily with, with your mobile because uh, the, the the standards would be different, right? Uh, and yeah. uh, in the meantime, um, you know, we, we have just one world. The world is, is just one 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 place with the same standards and interoper- interoperability uh, everywhere. But uh, we're going to move away from that. Yeah, I... I, I think I'm fully agree with you, and, and maybe this is this is the opportunity to rein in on some of the monopolies because you you kind of create a space outside those monopolies where you allow innovation to flourish, 
And then eventually once it's, it's mature enough, and this can be, you know, the case of TikTok, just a few months or like two years, um, through, TikTok has raised a lot of money. Without that, they wouldn't even be close to this. Um, but it would be a way to maybe break some of those monopolies. So that's that's something that I, I feel is a, is a good news about that. The There's an obvious problem is less trade generally makes everyone worse off. And there's a little escaping from this fact. This generally is, I mean, this obviously... The, the way we integrated China into the global value chain made a lot of individuals worse off in the US and Europe, but the country itself and many other people often, not necessarily the same people, are much better off uh, given the impact of China and the deflationary pressure that they put on the economies. And while well, we don't want deflation, it's better than crazy inflation. So the 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 risk is that if everyone is just shutting themselves out of global markets forever, <coughs> it's not going to be any better for anyone involved. And the question you can then say, oh, this so is always yeah. relative. Who's who's going to lose most out of this? I think everyone's losing a little bit. Maybe some people, some countries will only lose a few percentage GDP over the next 10 years. But for some, it might be zero growth for quite some time. So the system we had, um, there's probably better systems, but it seemed to hold this promise. And um, but maybe we are repeating the 1930s. So, you know, after this big boom years, it might be we just in a 90-year cycle after these big boom years of the 20s. It went pretty dark for the 30s and 40s. Well, uh, um, I forgot who, who who was it that said that. Um, uh, probably Rothschild. Um, I, or I, I, I actually I don't remember. But uh, very apropos, when goods don't cross borders. Armies do, yeah. Uh, so, so that is and you you have had uh, a significant uh, kind of uh, escalation uh, of military spending in over the course of the of the last uh, couple of years, right? Where uh, before you had you know the U.S. and then nobody, 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 and then. The country number two in the world uh, at some point it was Israel or you know uh, Russia or but you know the U.S. would be three, four, five times higher than than the second one. Uh, and in the meantime, you know everywhere uh, there's been a significant ramp up in in, in military spending, um, and, and that is um, not not a good sign. No, I, I feel the same. There's a huge, and I think there's a huge demand as it was in the 1920s, not consciously, but subconsciously for armed conflict. And you see this in lots of places in the world. And uh, California has that too, um, a, from a very different perspective. And there's not going to be, I think, sadly, my the, the chances for an armed conflict, even inside the U.S., as a civil war that's... Um, spreading into a wider conflict or maybe a wider conflict spreads into a civil war. Um, I think the chances for this are very high in the next 10 to 15 years. Um, and it's most likely going to be China and a bunch of other countries that will be on the other side of that that quandary. What what I think is great, and you, you're, you're right in the middle of this, is that the whole um, threat of countries going the way of Afghanistan, um, of Somalia and Yemen, that seemed to have died down. It's less on the minds of people and there seemed to be less of a, you know, imminent danger of uh, Islamic terrorism growing much wider. 
And now that, you know, the UAE has official relationships with Israel, I, I don't know how, that's, how this happened, but 20 years ago, I mean, you couldn't even say the word Israel, right? And you would, you would basically have had trouble. Um, you, you couldn't for the longest time say you're, you're traveling on a Jewish passport, even if you could go to the UAE for quite some time. This is amazing to me, and that's that's an extremely. It is, it is, it is indeed story. amazing. It, it is amazing, and I, uh, you know, my 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 dad, uh, he, my late dad, uh, he, uh, you know, at some point I asked him uh, when he was uh, still alive, you know, is there a trip that you would like to do? And, and he, you know, he said yes, I would love to go to Jerusalem, and uh, so I, I was living here in. In, in the Middle East, and uh, you know, in order to get to go to go to Jerusalem, we had to fly to uh, Jordan to Amman, and uh, and then from there cross cross the border by uh, you know the land border. Uh, that, that was a, an experience in itself, um, and and now uh, you know we have flights, we have direct flights from. Uh, from uh, from Dubai to Tel Aviv, right? So El Al is flying to Dubai, and uh, Fly Dubai is flying to Tel Aviv, and uh, soon I guess Emirates will fly to Tel Aviv as well. So that is uh, amazing, uh, fantastic. Yeah, it's incredible development. Given, I mean, how similar both countries were for a long time, and I always felt like Dubai is kind of like an American suburb. It could be Houston, just with more surveillance, and uh, you know, Tel Aviv is. is if you go out to the old city, it's been very much the same too. So the the idea of a very American lifestyle, but you know, in a different spirit, has been around. And I always felt like these countries they're, they're so similar, and you know that that should happen, but that wasn't even worth worth a debate. And then it just happened. I'm I'm, I'm amazed how quickly it then you know all the dominoes fall. There's basically about uh, a dozen more Arab countries who consider uh, signing up to the same deal. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully, hopefully that becomes an example uh, for for the other uh, conflicts that uh, are still, uh, you know, old um, conflicts that are still surviving uh, all over the world. And uh, that, you know, sometimes, but time, I'm sometimes not sure if, if if war is necessarily the worst thing that could happen. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's kind of a longer debate. We don't have time for this, but I think there is. It's not every war is is terrible. Let's put it this way. Um, most of them are, but not generally all of them are, which is a tough position. And it's it's there's a lot of negativity in this, but sometimes wars save lives. That would be that would be my position, but ninety percent of them don't. Ninety percent of them are are some of the most terrible things that can happen to anyone. Yeah. Um, on that on that positive note, <laughs> <laughs> thanks thanks Pablo for giving me so much time. Um, that I think we 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 had some really amazing things we covered here. Um, there was amazing input that you gave me. I'm really happy we could make this work. Uh, th- thank you, Thorsten. It's it's, uh, it's been my pleasure and really uh, an amazing conversation. Um, and uh, I, you, you also gave me a, a few ideas, and I have to get uh, the, the, the the you know when I listen to this, uh, I would love to to note the you know the books that you mentioned because I, w- I would like to uh, go after that as well. Okay. Once again, Pablo. Thanks for doing this.
you're most welcome, Thorsten. It's been a great pleasure.